from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. One of the great joys of my work in People Analytics is that I get to meet these amazing people, and in particular, amazing women, who are doing work in areas that actually didn't exist when we started our careers and whose accomplishments are practically invisible to most of us, despite the huge impact they have on our lives. One of these amazing women is Brenna Snyderman. Brenna is the Senior Manager and Subject Matter Specialist at Deloitte Services LP Center for Integrated Research. We're going to talk today about what she actually does, how she got there, and the surprising ways that she contributes to the future of work. Our phones are open at 1-844-942-7866. That is, of course, 1-844-WHARTON. If you have questions for Brenna or you'd like to join in our conversation, we'd love to have you participate. So give us a ring. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Brenna Snyderman, Senior Manager and Subject Matter Specialist at Deloitte, is also a Penn alumna. She studied economics as an undergraduate, communications as a graduate student at Columbia University. And in the years that follow, she's become this really amazing translator of new technologies in one of the world's most influential firms. In Brenna's roles as a subject matter specialist, she works with other thought leaders to deliver insights into the strategic and organizational implication of things that we kind of like, they're in our world every day, but most of us don't even know how to name them, including things like additive and advanced manufacturing, industry 4.0, the Internet of Things, and advanced technologies. She focuses on cross-industry themes and trends, provides expertise on the organizational impacts of new technologies, and what's really great is she's going to explain to all of us what this really means day to day. And it also builds on work she previously did as the Senior Director of Research for Forbes Insights, the thought leadership and sponsored research division of Forbes Media, where she got to check out things like global trends among senior executives, analytics, green technology, along with those things we talk about all the time, like leadership and diversity. Oh, and in between all of this, she has a family and managed to find time to join us here in the studio today. So with that, let me welcome Brenna. We're so glad to have you here at Women at Work. Thank you for having me. And I'd just like to say I would like to have you come and introduce me pretty much everywhere (laughs) I go now because I feel that was a good introduction. I'm so happy to help, happy to tag along. Um, But in exchange, you need to do me a favor. Would you explain to me what the Center for Integrative research is? Sure. And am I even saying it properly? It's the Center for Integrated Research, or as we call it within our team, the SIR. So if I say the SIR, it's shorthand. But the Center for Integrated Research is one of several centers that Deloitte has in a group it calls Eminence. Eminence is really thought leadership. So looking at new trends and new ideas and um, sort of new things on the horizon. And what the Center for Integrated Research does that's a little bit different is we look at cross-industry or cross-sector trends, um, like Industry 4.0 or additive manufacturing or the future of mobility or the future of work, which other members of my team also work on, that really look at a specific area and then do a series of research studies to examine how it impacts you know, different sectors, different job functions, different areas of strategy. So we might look at, say, additive manufacturing or 3D printing and how it impacts what you might want to think about intellectual property or what you might want to think about cybersecurity or all the different tentacles and in, in the ways in which they touch business. So we had had Amy Webb on the show mm-hmm. who wrote The Signals Are Talking and she's a futurist. Um, her forecasting can go out like 100 years. <laughs> how, 
far out are you considering the impact of these well, things? Well, you know, I think I can clarify. We're not necessarily futurists, um, but we're looking at what we're seeing today, um, what we're hearing from clients, what we're reading when we do our research, and using it to sort of extrapolate out what we think, you know, what we think this could mean. Um, so, for example, I, I guess to clarify, if we're looking at something like Industry 4.0, which I know we'll get to, um, we want to talk about, okay, here are the things you're going to need to consider. There's a lot of unintended consequences of this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of challenges. While this is a wonderful opportunity, there are a lot of things within your organization that you'll need to consider. When you connect your entire organization together, this brings tremendous opportunity. Let's talk about what that opportunity is and how you can meet that opportunity. But let's also talk about some of the challenges and how you can address those, too. So I, it, I think it's not necessarily being a futurist so much as really thinking holistically about an issue. So it's really understanding its implications throughout an organization mm-hmm. and across, not only throughout an industry, but across industries. Yes, across industries. So we might do looking uh, research looking at, say, additive manufacturing for the automotive industry, but we might also look at it for medical devices or some other industry as well. Okay. By its very nature, there's a lot of technology and science yes. in here. Yes. Is that because, how much of that is because um, you can't look at the future of industries without looking at technology? And how much of that is about um, specifically Deloitte's work? I think it's a combination of both. So, I mean, technology is everywhere and it's only growing more and more. I mean, we talk about it constantly, not just at work, but just in general. I mean, it's permeated our lives. I think before we got on to this conversation, we talked about turning off our phones because they're everywhere. <laughs> and uh, in fact, multiple devices that fact, we carry around. And in fact, I'm a little freaked out to be an hour without my phone. So I think, you know, we're, it, it's become a part of our lives to the point that it's just everywhere. So we can't not talk about technology when we talk about business. Um, and I think, you know, it is it is endemic to the nature of a lot of what Deloitte Consulting does is they talk about technology and how to implement it. Now, when we talk about technology and business here at Women at Work, it's often in concert with talking about how few women are in technology and certain areas of business. When you look around you mm-hmm. in your work world, um, are you the only woman there? No, I wouldn't say that I am. And I would also say that I'm incredibly lucky that I have a number of tremendous women around me, either on my team or that I have the opportunity to work with when I um, when I you know work with what we call the practice leaders or the individuals within consulting. There are, you know, I mean, it's it's they're strong, wonderful women. And I'm you know, I'm proud to get to work with them. And it's also clearly an organization that's dedicated to helping bring in and retain more women. Mm-hmm. Um, Deloitte actually put out a really interesting report today. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. And I'd like to also um, give a shout out to the, the people who wrote it. I was not involved in the writing of it, but I know that um, a couple of uh, Center for um, Industry Insights wrote a wonderful research study that focuses on women in manufacturing. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to read it last night. I thought it was fantastic. And it really talked about the ways in which manufacturing organizations are thinking along the lines of how they can recruit, train, and retain great women within the manufacturing industry. Um, I mean, I think it's very salient to our conversation. I know our conversation is talking more broadly about technology, but it's it's very salient to what we're talking about. There was an interesting idea that it introduced to me. I don't know whether it came from the report or whether it's just the place where I found it, of the difference between STEP and STEM. Mm -hmm. Could you explain it a little bit? Um, well, you know, when you talk about STEM, it's more talking about um, a little bit more of the sort of manufacturing and engineering and hands-on. And STEP is talking about a little bit more of sort of the management and planning and a lot of the other things that go into manufacturing that we might not think about. And I don't want to take away from the study because I know there's a lot of meat there that I, mm-hmm. I would love for people to read. <laughs> yes. so. um, but I also found it interesting that as we look at 
the importance of science, technology, engineering, um, math, production, um, that these are potent areas for work. They're potent areas that need more women because they need diversity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I was struck by um, as I was digging into some of your past work at Forbes was an article that you had written on diversity. Now, granted, this was a few years ago mm -hmm. about um, the the um, overlooked component of diversity of neurodiversity. Yes. And from where you sit now, have you seen that get more traction? Um, you know, it's hard to say because I haven't looked at it as much where I am now. Um, and that was a very personal piece that I wrote about things that are, you know, from my personal life. And, I, you know, I find it very important that we consider not just diversity in terms of how people look, but in terms of how people think and in terms of how people process the world around them. I think the technology is hopefully going to play. And I mean, this is, you know, speculation from my own part, but it's hopefully going to play a nice role in enabling people who maybe think or process a little bit differently to interact. Um, it's less face-to-face. -face. There's more opportunity to analyze and to think analytically and to quantify. And um, there, it also creates more opportunity and more roles that perhaps didn't exist before. And it also, one of the reasons why it really caught me is that at, I think at the heart of our desire to have the diversity that we can see, mm -hmm. gender and skin color, is that who we are in the world impacts how we think. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately what we are trying to get to is a diversity of thought that mm -hmm. comes from different experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I love about what I get to do is every paper that I work on and every research project that I work on is a little bit different and I get to work with different people who think very differently and have very different experiences. So at one moment I might be working with a person who's an expert in intellectual property. And the next moment I might be getting to work with somebody who thinks about only cybersecurity or a person who specializes in you know federal government. And so I really get an opportunity to have a breadth of relationships with people who think differently and, and have different levels of expertise. And it's very exciting for me because I have the opportunity to feel like I'm always learning. Well, that's something I want to explore a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because aside from the fact, okay, Penn, Columbia, we know, certified smarty pants. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really, how do you go into these experiences, these mm -hmm. collaborative work projects, so that you can engage meaningfully even when you're working on subject matters that you weren't previously conversant in? Well, and I think that last part is the key, is you go in knowing that you're not conversant in them, and you go in open to learning and understanding. So I try to walk into every project thinking, this person is the expert. I'm going to let them explain it to me, and I'll continue to do research to understand it on my own. But I also, it's very important for me that whomever I work with feels that their expertise is understood and respected, because they are experts, and it's important that they know that, and I know that. Um, but I look at it as a tremendous opportunity for me to learn and to grow my own breadth of understanding. So I always joke that my expertise is a mile wide and an inch deep because I work across <laughs> all these different things. But for me, I, I look at it as I'm dealing with the expert on this specific topic, but what it's doing is giving me a 360-degree view of the entire issue. And I hope that's something that I can bring to the project even while I'm trying to bring out the deep expertise of the people that I'm working with. It's something that I understand also having worked across institutions and also with faculty from a range of different fields. Um, and I found personally there's a funny dynamic that I have to navigate, and I'm curious to see if you can relate to it and how you do it, which is that there's a humility that we try and bring to it um, that's, I think, authentic, hopefully, and even um, and 
it's also important that you kind of keep your perspective in check so that you're open to learning. Mm -hmm. But for women in particular, that also sits right beside kind of being a good girl and <laughs> behaving well. And, um, and where in the process of listening and learning um, do you then step into your role as that expert on the mile-wide perspective? So that's a very good question, and that's something that really differs by the project. And quite honestly, as you said, you know, you have to be, listen to the person that you're working with and understand where their tolerances are. But I think part of it for me has also been a learning process from the beginning because it is very difficult, at least personally for me, to feel like an expert. You know, it gets back to the humility thing. You don't, I don't want to feel like, it's hubris. It feels like hubris. And <laughs> and I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that however much I know, there's plenty of people who know a heck of a lot more than I do. So what I it's sort of a process that I follow from the beginning where, um, and I can even, you know, as I think about it, mark it when you sit in a meeting with people, or at least it has been for me, and I'm thinking about a new topic. I listen and I don't speak. You know, it's the whole walk soft, speak softly, carry big stick, Theodore Roosevelt <laughs> process. But um and eventually, when they'll say things that I've been thinking in my head, I think, oh, great, I'm on the right track. I get it now because I'm starting to think things that they're saying. And then eventually it will flip to, well, wait a second, I was thinking that. Why didn't I say that instead of letting the other person say it? And then eventually I'll start to speak out. But then it gets to a point where I'm thinking things in my head that nobody else is saying. And so I'll think, well, I'm glad I didn't say that because I don't want to sound dumb. No one else is saying it. But then that, too, I think gets to the next level of, wait a second, I got to say this because everyone else is missing this. So I think it's it's a progression where I start to feel more confident that I have something of value to say. But it's, it takes a while. Also, I have to tell you, this sounds like it's a five-stage process <laughs> that we should be graphing and sending out on like Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, it's like um, the five stages of grief, <laughs> but, first, but first... No, and we're going to come back to this in a minute because I want to explore it a little bit. But um, for now, I just want to uh, let our listeners know that this is Women at Work on Business Radio, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Brenna Snyderman, Senior Manager and Subject Matter Specialist at Deloitte. If you want to join in the conversation and talk about how we listen, how we learn, um, and the things that Brenna's been learning all along, give us a call. We'd love to have you join in at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So what you were describing, and I'm not kidding, I'm going to go back and get the sound file <laughs> and chunk this out because I think there's something quite brilliant in what you articulated um, that describes an experience I know I've had, but nobody's mapped out for me, of how you move from being open and um inhabiting the role of the learner and recognizing where it's time for you to jump in because mm -hmm. you really do have something to contribute. And I think when you mix together the complexity of that for anyone, then with our gender patterning, it gets even more challenging. Well, and I think there's another added component to it, which is, you know, there's having something to say. And I, 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 I want to say having something to say, not anything to say, because it's important <laughs> to have something smart to say. Um, then there's having the courage to say it. But then there's the third thing, which to me is the hardest, which is having the courage to make sure that it gets heard. Um, and I think that's part of this whole process of listening, saying, listening again, and trying to say something, having the courage to try and say something new. Um, you know, you want to make sure that, that it gets heard. When you, did you have to learn how to get hurt? Oh, I'm still learning. I'm still <laughs> learning. Um, and I'm also l lucky to, to work with some wonderful men and women 
who are very supportive in making sure you know you, you have to speak up and you have to feel the courage to say things. Um, but it is it is hard. It is it's and I you know I'm not even sure that's it. maybe it's a gender issue, maybe it's not, but I think it just is. I think a lot of people struggle with it re- regardless. I know I do. We know that there are real gender patterns behind it, um, as much as it's clearly a personal experience and enhanced by the fact that you're, you're often in a room with people who are the subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a call. Um, Kelly from Denver is giving us a call. So, Kelly, welcome to Women at Work. We're delighted that you're listening and thrilled that you called in. What's on your mind today? Well, thank you so much. Um, just love listening to you all. Um, I just wanted to kind of go on the tangent with what you were saying about when you're in a meeting. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to the gender gap that is actually happening, right? And um, maybe there are subject matter experts, but I guess my question is, why is it that it's not uh, accepted on an equal Why is it not, hey, this person is clearly a vice president or is in this leadership um, uh, organization. Why can't we validate her opinion? Well, I think for me, it's not a question of, of gender or level. I, you know, When I listen to a subject matter expert, whether they're male or, or female, I listen and I accept that they know more <laughs> than me. And I think, and, you know, I think at least where I am and what I see is maybe I'm in a, a lucky situation, but I think women are really respected within where I've been as being experts as well. And I feel like they're listened to at that level, at the same level as anyone else. I think for me, when I walk into a room with a subject matter expert, I'm very careful to understand for myself that that individual knows more than me, regardless of gender. And I I have to respect that. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a reflection, Brenna, of the outstanding environments that you've been in. Because, Kelly, I have to tell you, I've had those experiences as well, and we know it from some of the research that's emerged over the years, that um, women will be perceived differently when they behave with a certain kind of strength and power. And um, nav- being having their voice heard in the conference room can be a major challenge. And so... so I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I, I struggle with that because if we're at the table... Mm-hmm. Someone has said that we are qualified to be there. It's, um, <laughs> I'm 90% sure it's been made with that decision. Um, why? Uh, what would be the tools, since we're on a talk show, what would be the tools that you would advise women in that situation to feel heard or feel validated? I, I feel like we're going back. 30 years. Yes. Okay. So I have to tell you, there's a great tool. It's actually a fantastic book that Jessica Bennett wrote called The Feminist Fight Club. And she takes what is an extremely witty but insightful approach to this and talks about things like um, when the man... When you say something in a meeting and nobody listens and then 10 minutes later a man says the same thing and everybody's like, oh, what a fabulous idea. And... Um, so you're right. These things do happen. Um, they shouldn't still be happening. But when they are, there are methods that we can turn to to politely assert ourselves. And I think one of the things that's, I think, critically important about what Brenna's laid out in the, in kind of her natural five-stage process, I'm going to call it, her big five, um, is that you start by listening, and as you realize you have something to say, you have to find a way to join that conversation and have the courage without losing your temper and without mm-hmm. being strident or getting emotional, but that mm-hmm. with clarity and summoning that confidence inside that you do belong in the conversation. And what I found is that 
Um, in particular, when I am passionate about something, when I care deeply about what we're discussing, um, the emotional barriers can go away because I care enough about the topic to jump in and it'll override my fear. But if, Agreed. And Agreed. so I think I really appreciate your question and your recognition of this and wholeheartedly recommend the Feminist Fight Club, um, whether it's a gift you give to other women in your life or if you want to turn to it um, as your own resource. So, Kelly, thank you so much for calling us. Um, if anybody else would like to call in and share your experiences, we would love to hear from you. We're at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, Brenna. You're an accomplished professional, but this journey into having the sensitivity and self-awareness, did you have it early in career? Oh, God, no. I mean, I think it's a constant process. And sometimes, you know, I think this is true for anyone. You look back on, you know, your first job and you sort of cringe at all the, you know, if you could go back and tell yourself all the things you know now, you know. It is a learning process in the same way, you know, I, I watch my kids at school, watch them learn. I feel like I'm still learning all of this. And even... If I look back at myself a couple of years ago versus now, I think it's just a constant evolution. Um, going, Talking a little bit about your evolution for a minute. So I found it very interesting that you studied economics, mm -hmm. and then you got a degree in communication. Mm -hmm. How did you land here? That is a good question. Well, so, I mean, I think one thing that, you know, when you talk about technology, you usually associate it with engineers and individuals who've known for a very long time what they want to do and they've trained for it. I think... I, like many people probably in college, did not know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, and so I majored in economics because I felt like it was a really great sort of foundation. It, because what economics really is, is it teaches you how to think sort of, how to think critically, how to think about, you know, game theory, how to think about what things mean and why people do the things they do and why organizations make the decisions they make and all kinds of things. And so it sort of prepared me for how to think. And so I took, you know, after college, you sort of try in a bunch of jobs and see what works for you. And, and what you did know, you do right after college? <laughs> a whole host of things. Oh, I, I found I wound up in market research at a certain point, um, which sort of introduced me to research. And I realized this is something I really love because I love learning about new things all the time. And as, as my research career sort of progressed, I went from market research to competitive research to strategic research and on and on and on until I finally fell into thought leadership, which is this research of looking at, um, you know, as we mentioned, what are the new things that we, we need to explore and how can we explore them and what their implications are. I think it really, I found it suited me. Um, I didn't know it was something that existed, to your point earlier. I didn't know it was something that existed when I went to college. And quite honestly, when I was in college, I don't know that I would have known that I wanted to do it. I think it takes some experience and time to figure out, for a lot of people, not for everyone, to figure out what you want. And um, I think the the ability to think critically coupled with the ability to communicate, which hopefully I'm doing an okay <laughs> job with now, um, it, it's, 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 it, it kind of prepares you for a whole host of things. Um, before we talk about the journey into communications and what that taught you, you know, you're sitting in our studio, you're looking out at Lo Locust Walk at students who are clearly, you know, doing the college thing. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give, especially in the season of graduations and, and, you know, that amazing thing where commencement is both ending and beginning, um, for people who don't know what to do next and to find areas that are interesting and speak to them? Well, I would say, first of all, and this is easier said than done because I'm not in that position right now, but don't worry so much. Uh, <laughs> but second of all, I would say keep, 
your eyes open for unexpected things because as I said, I didn't know that this existed. Um, and there are new roles coming up all the time. And I think, you know, to talk about manufacturing or technology or supply chain or all these different things, there are roles within those types of areas that you don't even know exist. And I think about this all the time. Like I was just um, visiting this weekend with, with family and we were talking about an aquarium and, and someone whose job it is to engineer tanks for fish. And I didn't even know that was a well, job. Exactly. And that's the thing is you think about all these different areas where you can apply expertise that you don't even know exist. It's the same ethos that that enables you to go into a room with a subject matter expert and keep an open mind and listen. You have to keep an open mind and listen and see what's out there because there are things you, you didn't even know existed. And also it sounds like in telling your own story, it reminds me of a conversation I was having earlier today with somebody who's just finishing a degree program, and she's trying to figure out where she goes next. But work has become so complex mm-hmm. and nuanced and inter- interesting in many ways that it's not as simple as I like to write or I like to speak or I like to problem solve um, because those are roles that you play, mm-hmm. activities you engage with, which are different than the industries you go into and then the roles you have within those industries. Exactly. And I think that's a really good point is that you don't have to think about your special your your expertise as a box because it can really go anywhere. And I think what you mentioned, problem solving, communications, all of those skills are universally needed everywhere. And you're actually putting it to use in an organization that has over 244,000 employees. When I was mentioning that to somebody, they were like, what do 244,000 people do? <laughs> All different things. Well, and it's funny because I, um, I my, my company does things that, you, like, I think a lot of people think of it as, as tax and accounting, and we have a tremendous consulting group. And then we have our group, and we have all these other different innovative groups that it's, I mean, it's things that you would never think of as, for an organization to do. And there's all these really interesting pockets of just experts who do amazing things. And, I, you know, it's, it's you talk about having so many people. Every time I think I have a great idea and I try to voice it to someone, they say, oh, you know, so-and-so is already doing that over here. You should talk to them. And there always is another expert to talk to who's doing something incredibly exciting. Which, so, so that's fun. Which is incredibly inspiring. But it also comes back to something you were talking about before in those stages mm-hmm. of um, as you listen and as you learn and mature in a role, um, on one hand, if you come up with a good idea, chances are somewhere else that good idea has emerged. There's also as good a chance at a certain point that you may be on to something new. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that for yourself? Well, that's that's another good question. I think some of it is there's also that fear of if no one else has done this, does that mean there's something wrong with it? And has other have other people tried this and abandoned this? And there is that fear of going into uncharted waters and sort of putting yourself out there for something that may turn out to be wrong. Um, so for me, what I found is it's always helpful to find yourself a champion who you can talk to about it, who who maybe is either more senior than you or who is someone you can connect with who can say, you know what, I think you're onto something and I think that's a great idea. If you have that sort of external validation, that can help. Well, I think we're on to something with that whole notion, which we're going to talk about as soon as we come back from the break. Um, Brennan and I will be continuing our conversation on women in STEM and STEP in tech and in life. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And if you want to give us a call, that'll be 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And we will be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're talking about women in STEM, STEP, and the unique career and really great insights of Brenna Snyderman, Senior Manager and Subject Matter Specialist at Deloitte. Um, If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7800. Six six, and I have to say, Brenna, I love the idea of your title, subject matter specialist, <laughs> and yet you become a subject matter specialist of all kinds of subjects. <laughs> I think everyone should have that title after their name because we're all an expert in something. I might borrow it if that's okay. <laughs> um, before the break, we were actually talking about um, becoming an expert in a way and finding your voice, and when in the arc of learning about something, um, you come across something that really is new Mm -hmm. or different Mm -hmm. and how you own it, how you verify that that could be real and move it forward in a productive way. Mm -hmm. Um, And you were talking about the role of other people in that process. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little more about that? Sure. I mean, I think for me, and I I mean, I, I can only speak for myself, but I think it's very helpful to have somebody that supports you and champions you, even if it's privately, and who can give you honest feedback constructively honest feedback that you can trust because it's not often that you can find someone who really has your best interests at heart and wants you to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you can find people like that who can say to you, you know what, I, I actually don't think this is a good idea or I think this is a great idea and you should run with it or I think it's a great idea and I'd love to work on it with you. I think that's a tremendous asset. And it's also something that I, I hope I can do for other people as well because I look at it as when other people succeed. It, it, it makes me happy. And I, want, <laughs> I, I, want, I want to, I, I, you know, I, I get a, a real excitement from seeing it happen. So, um, but I think in my own career, you know, we talked a little bit about my beginning. And I think what was helpful for me was in one of my first jobs I had, there was a woman who was my boss who was just really one of those once in a lifetime amazing bosses who took a huge interest in me and became a real I don't think a formal mentor because I've never actually, now that I think about it, I've never actually asked someone to be a mentor, but she really was there. And um, even after I left my role at that firm, I could always call her. We would go to lunch. She would give me advice on my career. Um, And she really, she was that person I wanted to be when I grew up. And she was really just this amazing, really supportive mentor now that I think about it. Um, And where I am now, I think there are a couple of people that that I work with that really serve as a guiding force in different ways. One who helps me, you know, think about, you know, new ideas. One who, who another person who's just fantastic at what they do and I like to watch her and, and think, you know, that's a really great, you know, approach to that. That's something I'm going to watch and learn or, you know, see how people do. And I think there are all kinds of things you can take from the people that you work with. But, you know, I, I think it's important to have those people that you can talk to. I'm really interested in the fact that you it sounds like you had the ideal mentorship relationship that people seek and can't find. Yeah. Um, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, but if not, that um, I think there are people who are searching for mentors. And to me, it feels like searching for true love. It's like dating. It totally is like dating. You have to, it has to be mutual, I think, and finding the right person in the right point in their career. Um, and finding, you know, it's, it's tough to find someone who, who has the time. Because it's it's hard to find the time. And also the connection mm-hmm. where there's a mutual, you know how to talk to each other, you know how to hear each other, an affection that's mm-hmm. part of it, and mm-hmm. a mutual respect. Because mm-hmm. I think that's part of one of the most important things I heard in your description was her 
attention came from respect for you that you could feel. Yeah, I, I hope so. And belief so. in you. Well, and I feel like in any role, and again, I have some of that now as well, I feel like you also both have something to offer each other. So in my mind, mentorship is not just giving your time or having someone give their time to you, but also providing them something back as well. So it's a, it's a mutual relationship. It is like a relationship. Yeah. And, and it's why I think um, mentorship programs can be harder. Yeah. And that... And one of the things we've talked about a lot on the show, is it that they don't work or is it that um, calling them mentorship programs attaches that expectation of that deeper kind of mutuality as opposed to here's a coach, here's a guide, Mm -hmm. here's an ambassador? Because being appointed to somebody can certainly be useful. But it may not have that kind of deeper resonance that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it's interesting because, I, as I think I just mentioned, I've never actually formally asked anyone to be a mentor. It feels like a very stressful co- – like, will you, be, will you be exclusive with me when we're da- – you know, it's, I, I don't know how you would ask someone that, that, that question. I just think it's something that you also have to let evolve over time um, because I think they're also – there are times and places for things and you can't just meet someone who you admire and expect them to want to be your mentor right away. I think you have to prove yourself and let a relationship develop over time and see where it leads. Have people asked you to mentor them? Oh God, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and I, people actually have. And, really? And going back to the, like, where are we in that arc? Yeah. Um, there'll be a moment where I'm thinking, me? Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's another moment like, oh, Okay. How can I help? But there's the mystery of what do you want from this relationship and how can I be useful to you? And well, how can it also be a realistic one well, given and I think, time? And I think there's also the fear of what do I have of expertise to tell anyone? <laughs> um, and I mean, I would like to believe that I have been helpful to other women, but I, I try to. Um, but I, you know, I've never had anyone formally ask me now. So do you have that other tier of people that you turn to, not for mentorship, but for that kind of coaching ambassadorship? Mm -hmm. I do. And how do you build up that network? I think it just takes time. It takes time. Um, It's like anything else. You you, you have to have some of a a bit of a history with a person where they sort of have to know your strengths and weaknesses and, um, you know, feel like they know how to speak to you about things that, that you might need help with. I mean, I, I think as with anything, it, it does take patience, which is tough for me because I'm, I'm not <laughs> as patient as I would like to be, but it does take patience and time. You work in this enormous organization. Um, I'm sure you have a unit, though, that mm-hmm. contains much of your work. Mm-hmm. When you are going into kind of new territory where um, you need to find that expert, reach out to that person, how do you approach building that relationship and creating real dialogue? So a couple of ways. One, I, I like to find – usually the way you meet somebody new is someone will say, oh, you, you need to meet so-and-so. And Brenna, introduce- meet Laura. Laura, yeah, meet Brenna. Brenna. And then you, you, some of it is – with some people, you have an instant connection. You sit, it's like friendship. You sit down and you click immediately, and you can talk to them about everything. With others, it's a, it's a more laborious process. And with some people, no matter what, it's just always about the project at hand, and there's not anything more personal than that. And that's fine. I think – my my personal approach to that is to really gauge the other person because I, I do take my cues off of the personality of the person that I'm with. And maybe I'm a little bit too Zelig-like there. But, <laughs> um, you know, if you really it's, – it's different for everybody. But I think for me, I always approach it first with here's how I can help you. Here's what I'm looking to do. Um, you know, maybe this is something we can work together on. Um, let's talk. So that's actually an important – um, useful 
nugget, which is that you're bringing to it not just your humility, but um, you're coming to them with the gift of how can I help? Mm-hmm. And your first, and it's not transactional, and it's not what can I get from you, but where can I be a resource to advance your work? Well, and because that's part of what my role is. My role is to help, um, and I, I so I want to do that. So you bring so it sounds like part of what enables you to do this is an inherent curiosity, an ability to listen carefully, and to make sense out of what you're hearing. Um, am I wrong, or did some of that come from your communications training? I think some of it did, um, <laughs> hopefully. I mean, I, I paid all that money for the degree, so I hope it helped. But, yeah, no, I think it I think it did. And I think it also comes with when you read enough and you work on enough, you start to recognize patterns and see mm-hmm. how things fit together. And it comes just from time. So I want to talk, though, a little bit about your communications degree. Why did you go and get a communications degree? Well... That's another good question. I think for me, you know, you do a lot of research. And one of the things I love about my job now is many, most, well, everyone that I work with is very good at communicating research very well. But it's a really hard thing to do. And there's not a lot of people who can take data and information and figure out a way to tell a story about it. And it was something I realized I love to write in my spare time. And I've, you know, been many personally in many writing workshops and worked on things personally. And I love research, so now I want to figure out how to bring these things together. And I have, you know, this critical thinking background, and I love to write. How can I, how can I pull this together and figure out how to translate what I'm learning into something that I can communicate to other people? So it's funny to think about storytelling mm-hmm. in an arena like the future of work. Mm-hmm. Um, in your process of doing this, have there been stories that about the future of work and? Industry 4.0 that you found particularly compelling? I think so. I mean, for Industry 4.0, which is really where I I mostly focus, there's been a lot of really compelling things because it's just the whole story of how things get connected and what that means. And that, to me, is a fascinating story. So, I mean, I guess to back up, I should probably explain what Industry 4.0 is. Yes, that would be a good thing to do. I take for granted that people know because... I know. and uh, But really, what Industry 4.0 is, and the reason it's called Industry 4.0 is it's the fourth industrial revolution. And I'm using air quotes as I talk to you. Um, but, yeah, so tell us what the first three were. Well, the first was steam power, power loom. Second was the assembly line. Uh, the third was the introduction of computers and relatively simple robots that automated processes. And the third, or the fourth, is really that marriage of the physical and the digital world. So when you can connect all of your physical assets together with things like the Internet of Things um, or, you know, connected sensors to really understand end-to-end how your organization works and functions. So it's really the marriage of the digital and physical worlds where you use actions in the physical world, um, take digital information about them to then go go back and influence the physical world again. So it's, it's really just a fancy way of saying really smart, connected environments right and that the it's the connection Mm -hmm. and um the fact that the data is in the cloud and connecting between everything from how we move how machines move Mm -hmm. to your supply network to uh, yes and also in people analytics things like our email messages Mm -hmm. our calendars the whole data trail that we Mm -hmm. leave behind and the operations of an organization so it's interesting when we talk about things like manufacturing and the supply chain it's not just about you know being on the factory floor, it's about all these other things that are around it, like the whole operations around it and all the data and all the information. And so it's it's fascinating to me because, you know, we talked about all these careers that we didn't know existed. I feel like researching this has opened up for me all these different facets that I never would have thought about, but it makes perfect sense that these are things that organizations need to consider. 
Without a doubt. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Brenna Snyderman, Senior Manager and Subject Matter Specialist. I just love that title. At Deloitte. If you want to join in the conversation and share your experience about discovering the things you never knew existed and finding your way to learning and growing, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So as you in many ways see well you're not a futurist you're seeing the patterns across yeah. the business world in a different way than the rest of us so that what happens in 6 months may not shock you the way it shocks the rest of us well yeah with what you know now about what's happening in business is there an area you would have gone in you know, I think I'd probably want to be where I am because I like learning about it. And, you know, it's interesting for me because I, you keep saying I'm an expert. I don't consider myself an expert. I consider <laughs> the people that I work with to be experts because they really – I mean, they are the ones that are teaching me about all this every day. And I just – I really um, – I think I'd probably want to be where I am. So, a – that is such a wonderful thing to hear. It implies a happiness and an excitement about what you do that I think it, that more than anything should be what we're striving for. And also to honor the I, – I, I appreciate how deeply you respect the people that you're working for and with that um, in comparison to you, you see them as experts and you are an expert translator and ambassador. I hope so. I hope so. And, I, you know, it's interesting because a lot of what I do, it's a mix of writing my own work and then working with other individuals to help them write theirs as well. So they are the authors and I sort of help them maybe edit and hone it into a little bit more of a, a story, but they're the ones that have the expertise and, and write the work. And so it's, you know, it's it's nice to have that mix. Um, speaking of st- the stories, <laughs> your story also includes kids, a it husband. Does. It does. And this great big job. And a dog. <laughs> Let's not <laughs> yes, forget my dog. Who's the one who's really the social media star. Um, how do how are you making that work? Um, a couple of ways. One, and you know, my husband will kill me for this, but he is a real partner and he does fifty percent of the work, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it evens out to fifty percent and you know, it really is something where we shoulder everything together. And I, I you know, it's when I travel, which is often, he shoulders everything. And when he's busy, I shoulder everything. And I think we really, um, I'm, I'm very lucky in that respect, that he's just incredibly present. Um, I hope you don't mind my asking a couple mm-hmm. of questions about that. Because we recently um, had the the great good fortune to have Tiffany Dufu on the show, mm-hmm. uh, talking about her book, Drop the Ball, um, where she had to go through a journey to get to the place where it really was a partnership in that regard, not as a reflection of a lack of love or mutual respect, but because of preconceived notions mm-hmm. that actually as a woman, she carried into that dynamic and relationship. How did you, were you just lucky? How did you <laughs> get to 50-50? You know, I think it, we sort of fell into it because there are certain things that only I do and there are certain things that only he does but we split them so for example we joke that it is very gender specific that I do all the cooking but he folds all the laundry because I okay. hate folding all the laundry <laughs> so I you so know, you don't have the you're not inside and he's outside mm-mm, mm-mm. okay we, but you know we I think it just it's just a pattern we fell into and I think I happen to be lucky that we fell into a pattern that is a sustainable pattern in as much as two working individuals with children can have a sustainable pattern yeah um, when you do travel for work mm-hmm. Um, how do you handle your own? Because, like, when I travel for work, um, there's 
the stress of leaving home. Mm -hmm. There's the guilt about leaving my daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also the need to be fully present where I am. Mm -hmm. And I've found that's personally a hard thing to juggle. And at different stages of her life, as well as mine, I've been better and worse at it. How do you negotiate that? Well, it's it's practice. And my son, he has a very wonderful way of explaining things. He's very... (laughs) an interesting kid but he's very you know I was talking to him once we were walking the dog and he said to me you know I'm letting my imagination come out as I talk to you and I said oh well what do you mean about that he said well I have a drawer in my head and I put my imagination in there when I go to school and when I come home from school I take my imagination back out (gasps) which first of all made me a little bit sad about school but that's a separate (laughs) story but it it, it is it is I think a a child's way of explaining what I think I, I do when I travel which is when I have to work I, I'm working and I don't think I, I have my box that I work and I don't think mm-hmm. about the where other stuff, you're not where I'm not because there's no other way to do it you have to be present where you are and that's something that I've been working on and, and Deloitte's great about having classes about all this teaching you to be present in the moment where you are and so I've really been working on that but I have you know various points in the day where I'll sneak out to call you know at night before bed or in the morning before school just to talk and you know you you try to carve out those moments those are the moments you're present there and the rest of the time you just have to be on where you are it's a little easier now that they're older Mm -hmm. but it's harder in other ways too because you know you we want to be present in some of the things that they're doing how do you use technology to connect with them when you're away um i use phone um and text because they love to text (laughs) it's funny i saw um an interesting ebb and flow with facetime Mm -hmm. that um i remember similarly i was Working on a global conference, um, you know, in Southeast Asia at a hotel, and I got the ring on my phone like, oh, it's her. It's time to wake up and go to school. So I had to, like, switch gears, slip out into the lobby. We FaceTime. Um, and at that point, she was so excited to have face contact, and, it, and I felt connected. Mm-hmm. And then I found that sometimes it made her sadder. Yeah. It was, it was almost like there's a portion of the imagination that goes in the box. There's a way that the kids manage having us away mm-hmm. in the moment that's important for them to retain. And I had to learn to follow her signals about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And then one, which I'll just share because it's still so dear to me and now so far away because my daughter's in high school. Um, I had uh, – doubles of her favorite books Mm -hmm. and I'd travel with one and she'd keep one and we could have story time over the phone well that's really sweet (laughs) I I think I liked it more than she did I think I'm the only one who remembers it but finding ways to Mm -hmm. stay connected but also it's interesting you say you got to be present where you are and you have to separate I mean at a certain point also you're an adult and you know you're you're paid to do your job and you have to do your job (laughs) well and the thing is also I really get energized when I get to travel and meet with people because a lot of the work that I do is virtual so I love getting to meet with the practitioners that I work with, and it's nice to have the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. I mean, to be somewhere else, and there's so much to learn there, especially as a curious person. The other part of it, which Tiffany Dufu talked about, was also the amount of trust you have to have for the person who's at home. Mm-hmm. So it, what you're saying suggests to me that that trust is there mm-hmm. and that he's being full-time dad on the job when you're away. I hope so. <laughs> um, so. I don't want to think about smoke alarms. No, I, you know, I think I think a lot of it is also a little bit of letting go and realizing I was given this advice once where you could be right or you could be relaxed. So at a certain point. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like I'm not going to go back and refold laundry because it's not folded the way I want because I don't want to have to fold it at all. So if it's 
someone's doing it. I don't care. You know, so for me, you know, he he is doing it the right way because it's getting done. And even that's if, huge. Well, and I think it also and I hate to bring it back to work, but it's also useful at work, too. Everybody does things differently and it doesn't mean it's wrong. And I've you know, when it's it's you know, it actually opens my mind up a little bit more to see the way other people think and what they do, because I'm not always right either. Don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> no, this is I love hearing this from you. It's not only totally echoing what um, we were learning from Tiffany, but it's like advice that I wish I had had much younger mm-hmm. because um, so wrapped up in my own notions of, no, this is the way this has to be done. And the, I think, illusion that if things are done that way, somehow you have control over the universe and everything's safe. And it's truly an illusion. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So that's advice I wished you had given me when I was young. Um, one of the things that I was taken with in the Deloitte report that came mm-hmm. out today was also um, a, a section that was advice from female executives to their younger selves. Yeah. And I was wondering, when you read that, you had to have thought, what would I wish I could tell my younger self? Well, I think I, think I would tell my younger self the same thing I try to tell myself now, which is just speak up. It's okay to have an opinion, and it's okay to to voice that opinion. Um, it's okay not to know the answers, and it's okay to listen to people around you because sometimes they'll open your mind up to things you didn't know, um, and that's a good thing. I think the other thing I would tell myself is, you know, as I said before, just relax, and, and it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because t- I think you know I'm of a certain mindset where I just tend to worry, and you know I think that's one of the things that helps me at my job is because I'm constantly worried about making sure everything is as good as it possibly can be. But I think it's, it's important sometimes to just also keep your mind open to, to new, new, ex, you know, just new, I don't know the word that I'm thinking of, but um, I don't know, Eureka's. <laughs> um, in what you just explained about learning and being open and accepting that you can make mistakes, um, we've talked a lot in different in all different ways about fear of failure, mm-hmm. comfort with risk, mm-hmm. on all different levels. When you think about the right zone to accept failure and risk as somebody who pursues excellence, how do you navigate that? Well, it's tough because I, you know, I'm incredibly hard on myself. And I think I think that's common for a lot of people. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not just me. And I've talked to a lot of people that I work with who are the same way. <laughs> Um, where I, I will beat myself up for every single failure, every single, no matter how small um, or how large, I beat myself up for it. And, and so, and let me interrupt for a second. Is that equating mistake with failure? Yes, it is. And actually, I never thought about it. This is like therapy. I should pay you. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's mutual. <laughs> yes, but it's um, yes, I, I do. And it's it's a challenge that I think is is my own you know challenge to deal with. But I think. Um, I, I can intellectualize that failure is is part of the process, um, but it it's it's a learning experience that is a very challenging one for me because I'm constantly trying to figure out how I could have been better or done more. And so I you know and I think that's a f- hopefully not just me but a fairly universal worry. Um, and I think at times it has made me risk averse because I'm afraid to fail. But I you know at a certain point when you start to become more comfortable with what you know, it becomes easier I think to take risks. I was talking with an amazing woman who works at the Martin Prosperity Institute um, a week or two ago. And one of the things that she pointed out that was interesting is in trying to make an environment where 
people can be creative and collaborate, um, that's where, if we use the words mistakes instead of failures, mm-hmm. and figure out how not to perceive them as failures. Well, and I think there's also an, an, an element of trust there, too, where you, when you work with people, you have to trust that it's going to be okay. And Sorry. that making those mistakes along the way are okay so that you're avoiding the failures that are not okay. Well, yes, exactly. They're the mission-critical failures, but we have to stop confusing those with, I said something that the room didn't agree with. Yes. Well, exactly. And I think there's also the idea of it's okay to make a mistake as long as you don't keep making the same one. <laughs> you know, you learn, learn from it. Right. That You just you make new mistakes next time. Well, and it's interesting because I've learned that I am much more tolerant in mistakes from other people than I am in mistakes from myself. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I just <laughs> It sounds to me like it's part of your humility and part of your commitment to excellence wow. and, and part of how you keep learning. But dare I say, it may be also part of um, it, it does align with certain gender patterns. Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And also with excellence in a way and learning how to trust what you can bring to the table while you're learning about it. Brenna, if you were going to give any advice quickly um, to people who are interested in learning more about the kind of work that you do. Mm-hmm. Where could they go? Well, they can go to DU Press, where a lot of our thought leadership is posted. They can read um, about Industry 4.0 and about additive manufacturing, as well as a lot of the other really incredible research campaigns that we do, like behavioral economics and um, future of mobility, and as well as a lot of the work that the other wonderful centers that within my organization do around healthcare and all these other different areas. So, um, I mean, that's a great place to go to get started. That's fantastic. Brenna, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Um, if anybody has a question about anything heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. I'd like to give a special thank you to my guest today, Brenna Snyderman. I would also like to thank our producer, my beloved Patty Hall in the booth, our associate producer, Ali Freed, as always doing excellent research for us, our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamas. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Thanks, everyone.